Welcome back to the Pregnantish podcast, where we cover extraordinary family building stories and share what's possible when families are built with science and technology. Today's episode is supported by A Lifetime of Pride and Joy, a campaign that celebrates and encourages family equality and includes the opportunity for members of the queer community to build their own modern family through a chance to win a free fertility journey, including IVF and surrogacy services. For more, visit pridejoybaby.com. Deidre Downs Gunn, MD, held the state title of Miss Alabama before entering the National Miss America competition back in 2005, and she holds another title today. She is the first Miss America to enter a same-sex marriage. I thought, here in Birmingham, Alabama, I have this background, this past as Miss America, and once a Miss America, always a Miss America. When I come out, it's not going to be a quiet thing, probably. It's at least a headline, right? And that was really, really scary. And not that I never saw myself doing that, but I thought the possibility of meeting someone that I would want to spend my life with and publicly come out for (laughs) in Birmingham, Alabama, that was probably unlikely. Deidre and her wife Abbott met on a dating site in 2017, while Deidre was finishing her fellowship in reproductive endocrinology and infertility. Today, the couple is expecting a baby conceived through an IVF transfer performed by Dr. Deidre herself. There's a lot to talk about here. Thanks so much for joining us on the Pregnant Podcast for our Pride programming. Thank you so much for having me. You know, I I have to admit, I've never interviewed a national title holder, (laughs) Miss America. (laughs) Before we go into all the details of your family building journey, which is really the the core of this podcast, you know, families built against odds, I would love to start with the pageants because first, of course, you won Miss Alabama at the state level, then you were on the national stage. So what inspired you to pursue the pageants, the pageant life? Yeah, so it it was not something a lot of people imagine that I grew up doing pageants or from a very young age wanted to become Miss America. And that's not really true. I I did watch the Miss America pageant every year. My mom and I would watch it. I never, never imagined myself becoming Miss America. I just did not think that was something that was just within reach or just wasn't part of my trajectory in life. And I actually went to, to college on a volleyball scholarship. And I did that for just the first year of college. And it really, when you get to that level, it's, it's almost more of a business. It's, it's incredibly time consuming, obviously. And, and I really wanted to have more of a college experience and focus, especially be able to focus on my ultimate goal, which was going to medical school. So my, my mother actually suggested that I do a local pageant to the Miss Alabama pageant to get some scholarship money. And I just decided to give it a shot. (laughs) Wow. And so what was it like when you entered that pageant world? Can you explain it? Was it surreal? Did you feel like you were fitting right in? Can you bring us back to that point in your life? You know, it wasn't as much of a culture shock, I guess, as as I might have expected. A lot of you know, you imagine that there are these professional sort of pageant entrants, you know, they're they've done it for years and years, and there are some of those, but there are a lot of just regular people and even the ones that have done it for several years, a lot of them were just, they're just normal people. And it's like anything else in life. I think they're the people who 
are cutthroat and will do anything it takes to win, just like in business or sports. So I think it was just, for me, it was that challenge of doing something that I had never really done before. And with sports, especially team sports, which is what I had always played, you know, you, you played your role and then ultimately it was kind of dependent on the team, the success. But with this, it was, you go out there and, and it's just you for two minutes singing your, your song or performing your talent or doing the interview, et cetera. And for me, that was just, it was really neat, just the challenge of it. So I, I kind of not only that enjoyed that part of it, but also got, I think, 2000 or maybe $2,500 that very first year, never even made top 10 at Miss Alabama and still just you know, this was a lucrative thing and also something that I enjoyed and and I decided to try it again. And five years later, I became Miss America. So a little perseverance required, but that was okay. Just a little. What was that moment like when you were crowned Miss America? Because the, my thinking here is, you know, everything you've gone through since then, you've persevered through challenges and not, you know, straight, easy paths in in everything you've created after Miss America. But what was that moment like when you were crowned? Can you bring us back to that? I've watched it and it, several times, obviously. And looking back, it's, I, I still struggle to believe that it happened because it's just, <laughs> it is surreal. It just, it was a really amazing experience. And I think the the first thought that I had actually was that my crown was not secured very well on my head. And <laughs> as I went down the runway in the Atlantic City Convention Center, very long runway, I felt the crown sort of bobbing on my head a little bit. And I was like, well, I guess if it falls off, they'll have to get me another one. <laughs> and I saw my parents at the end of the runway. And it was just, it was amazing. Just, just really, really cool. Must have been so surreal. How did it change your life? Oh, wow. Well, the, the most immediate change was that I had to defer medical school for two years. I thought it would just be a year once I won Miss Alabama. And then after winning Miss America, I had to defer another year. And interestingly, I was, the, I was the at that time, the longest reigning Miss America. I became the longest reigning Miss America since the Great Depression. Hmm. Um, they changed the date of the pageant. So instead of the normal 12 months, I had 16 months and... It was a great experience, but 16 months is a long time to live on the road. So medical school almost felt like a break by that time. But in addition to just the, you know, the scholarship money, the opportunities that I had to just sort of develop myself in terms of communication skills and being a leader, meeting lots of different people and from diverse backgrounds. I mean, there are some things that just... I'll never forget opportunities to meet kids in the hospital, to to share the crown with them, let them take pictures. At that time, I really wanted to go into pediatrics and don't get me wrong, I love kids. But I realized once I got to medical school that I don't want to be their doctor. But that year, it was really amazing just to get to go around and, and tour children's hospitals and, and speak about my platform. So did you always know, that's, that's incredible, did you always know that you wanted to pursue medicine. What led you to women's health specifically? Yeah, starting in high school, I had surgery on my hip after a car accident. So at that point, I became interested in medicine and wasn't exactly sure what direction that would take. And then later, as I mentioned, the interest in pediatrics, but it really wasn't until medical school when I got to my third year and you go around and do different rotations and the different specialties. And I had, I had crafted my schedule in a way that would make me 
kind of a superstar, very experienced by the time I got to my pediatrics rotation and, and they would just, you know, think I was wonderful. What I didn't take into account was the fact that I really enjoyed OBGYN, which was the first thing that I, I scheduled so I could get it out of the way. I thought I'm not going to be interested in that at all. That's, I mean, being able to help deliver babies, sure, that's great, but not my thing. And I really loved the continuity of care and I liked being able to make people comfortable and talk to people about things that were most important to them and really educate them about their health and empower them. And I felt like women's health was the way to do that. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's such, it's an area that still needs so much support. (laughs) And I always appreciate people who come to it with the, the intentions you've had, you know, to be a supportive person along the journey to help them with difficult issues now, when, you know, you, you talked about, okay, delivering babies was okay, but you hadn't thought of practicing in this area before that. Speaking of that, when did you think of having your own family and having a baby? And what did you imagine that to look like? Yeah, so I got married my third year of medical school. And my husband at the time, my former husband, we knew that headed into any kind of residency would be difficult in terms of family life. And I didn't want to delay too long before having children. So I got pregnant really after just a few months of trying. I was in my late 20s at that that time and had my son, who is now 11, hard to believe, my fourth year of medical school. So uh, I, I felt like being able to, it was almost like, let's get this done, because I know I'm going to have about three or four years that I may not have that opportunity. And some of that was just my my lack of knowledge about what the opportunities were. But a lot of it was just a holdover of this. There are still aspects, still areas of medicine where it's not encouraged to have a family to, you're, you're sort of actively discouraged from doing those things while you're a resident. And I think a lot of those attitudes are changing, but at the time, I really didn't know what that would look like. So it was important to me to go ahead and, if I could, start my family then while I had the opportunity. Yes. And I I mean, we're talking also about you in Alabama at this time, correct? Right. So... There's a lot of, I mean, I'm, I imagine, I'm, I'm reporting here from Brooklyn, New York, a pretty progressive area, but I imagine between Miss America, going to medical school, living in the South, there, there are a lot of expectations put on, on you for right. what your life just and family, <laughs> just a few, look like. And of course, we're doing this in honor of Pride Month, so... You know, I I would love to hear about after you you married. I heard it was your high school sweetheart. Is that correct? Or was it someone you knew in high school? In college. Oh, in college. Okay, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so after you married your college boyfriend and you had a baby and you were finishing up medical school, when did you know you may be attracted to women? Did you know? Did it come as a surprise? Can you take us back to that part of your life? Yeah, I mean. Uh- Looking back at everything, it probably should not have come as a surprise, but it did. I think toward the toward the end of of residency, beginning of fellowship, I had been married for several years, and it obviously the this is true for any marriage. I think residency can take a toll. You're away a lot, all those things, and for me, it, there was a feeling. 
I guess, of a lack of closeness and, and just sort of trying to process that as, long, as well as other things in my life, managing stress, that kind of thing. I, I went to therapy and just sort of talking through that, processing it, realized that this might be an aspect of my personality, more who I was and hadn't actually ever stopped to realize that and that that might be contributing to some of the issues in my marriage. So I think that was the first, that was really the first time I maybe reflected and realized that that, that I was gay. So, And at that time you were, what, early 30s or uh, still in your late 20s? Yeah, my, my mid-30s. Do you think the the way, where you grew up and what you were doing, you know, contributed to maybe you not knowing about that part of your yourself? Or do you think other factors contributed to that? Yeah, I, I think that I think that did have probably a that did probably play a big role. And when you look at the changes that have come about even in the last 20 years, when I think about kind of crazy to think of myself in high school 20 years ago, but actually, I guess I was in college, but nonetheless, <laughs> long ago, when I, in my formative years, thinking about some of these things, it, it was not, not acceptable. It was not really a path that you even thought of. And I think that's why it took me so long. It wasn't that my family even was, was not progressive or I thought that they would reject me. In fact, they have been great, but I think it was just the the lack of exposure, mm-hmm. I think, to a diversity of people and and just understanding all the different aspects of sexuality. And I think now kids, young people, there's a lot of a lot more acceptance, obviously, and we have a long way to go. But I wonder sometimes had I been a teenager now, would I have discovered this about myself? much earlier. And I think the answer to that's probably yes. Probably yes. Also, even simply because of social media, where, right, where you can find community, even kind of secretly. Yeah, uh, as you figure things out. And I, I, that's a very good point. Not only were you in Alabama, not only are you in beauty pageants, but it's 20 years plus ago that right. we're talking about. So we can't really use today as this, the same context. But, but so then you realize through therapy, and I imagine soon-ish after maybe separated from your marriage, did you imagine at that point having more children, being partnered with a woman in in a committed way? Like, what were you thinking once you came out even to yourself? So at that point, I actually imagined probably never partnering with anyone. I thought here in Birmingham, Alabama, I have this background, this past as Miss America. And once a Miss America, always a Miss America. When I come out, it's not going to be a quiet thing, probably. It's at least a headline, right? And that was really, really scary. And not that I never saw myself doing that, but I thought the possibility of meeting someone that I would want to spend my life with and publicly come out for (laughs) in Birmingham, Alabama, that was probably unlikely. Wow. And so you... That is a really good point, too. I think that most listeners cannot identify with the the public spotlight on you as you 
would come out and be who you are, but that's a lot of pressure right there. So how did you come out? Did you come out first to your family and friends? And and then when did you decide to join a dating site? I did. I came out to my, my family and friends first, and it was an overwhelmingly positive experience, which I'm fortunate to have mm-hmm. had. That's not that's not common or, you know, certainly not, doesn't happen for everyone. It's still, I, I then came out to some people at work, some close, you know, mentors and colleagues that I felt would be supportive. And they largely were. I had a couple of people warn me about, oh, you know, what, what could the impact on your career be and that sort of thing. And then others who said, no, not at all. That's, and mm. fortunately, UAB, the University of Alabama, Birmingham is, is, very committed to diversity. And so that was a huge plus, but not yet to the point that I was ready to announce it because again, in the back of my mind, thinking about the press mm. whenever that happened. So yeah, it took me a while before I decided to to try to date, a couple of years actually, or a year and a half at least. And then I decided just to go on a dating site and I did not use my name. I used a fake name. My <laughs> wife loves to tell the story because she is like, why did I answer an ad or why did I engage with a, a profile on a dating site that didn't have a picture and just ultimately sounded pretty sketchy? <laughs> she was like, but you know, you, you had all these interests that were the same as mine. Her friends, actually one of whom lives in Brooklyn said, you absolutely cannot contact this person like you will be in the trunk of a car somewhere dead (laughs) (laughs) because everybody today googles and so much comes up for you when you google i can identify with that only insofar as the fact that i'm in the media so and i'm the only one in the world with my name so you could always find me but i can't imagine you had to conceal your identity but not even showing a picture i mean that that's quite amazing that she fell for just purely the words that you you shared that says a lot about her too yeah i have to believe it was sort of meant to be because yeah to to be okay with not having a picture the other kind of remarkable thing about it is she had like a seven-day trial and of course i had paid for like three months of this dating site (laughs) she did a seven-day free trial and yeah met me and I guess about a week into talking to her when, you know, she was going to lose her seven day free trial, we started to text and I told her my real name and she didn't respond for like eight hours. And I was like, okay, well, she's not okay with this whole, like used to be in a pageant or, you know, any of that, but she actually was just freaking out and texting all her friends like, oh my gosh, (laughs) you're never going to believe this. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that's, that's. A great meet cute story right there. <laughs> it really is. What was your first date and what did you still have that those same, you know, were you still drawn to each other the way you were online right away? Yeah. I mean, we, we had just instant chemistry. We, we met at this really cool bar downtown, had, had a drink and then ate at this new restaurant across the street. It, we just, we ended up actually kind of closing the place down, just talked for hours. And I mean, I, I knew that night that that she was the one. And mm. I think she did too. Wow. How soon after did you marry? So we got married, I guess, about a year later. 
Yeah, that's pretty fast. I mean, yeah. I, it's so interesting because, of course, if you Google your name, we see a lot about your marriage to Abbott. A lot of mm -hmm. media covered that. Is that when you were really out in the media? Yeah, so we we managed to keep this a secret until really right before. I don't know how we managed, but somehow, and I was terrified that that year was one of the most stressful years for me, I think, because mm. I just wasn't sure exactly what what to expect. And the week before we, we started getting calls from, from some media and just sort of decided, well, this is happening. The media is going to write a story about it. So we might as well just go with it. And so that's when we kind of gave the exclusive to People Magazine. And yeah, it ended up being a really positive thing in a way that I had never expected. I mean, there were so many messages on my social media accounts, just people who were so thankful that that I had come out because I'll never forget this message from a, a college student in Mississippi who said, it's amazing to me, like you had this courage to do this. Like that makes me have the courage to be myself too. And mm. There were lots of messages like that. And so on balance, it, it was good. You can't embody Miss America more, you know, your role as getting a message like that. You know, the role is to be a role model and to let other people feel they can authentically live through your bravery and your platform is quite amazing. So what I'm also really interested in is how the Miss America Association handled it did they did they support you was there any press that they published around that or did they kind of stay uh quiet they were actually very supportive they i think retweeted things they mm -hmm. just were they were very positive and that helped obviously definitely so you and abbott got married did you on an early date or in your long conversations when you met and were dating talk about having a family together and what did you think would happen at that time when you talked about it? Yeah, we did. And, and my son was, I guess at the time he was about seven, seven or eight. And, you know, I knew I wanted to have more children. Abbott doesn't have any, any children. So uh, we wanted to have kids together. And I guess having been in the infertility field for a couple of years by then, I knew kind of what the options were. And I think what we thought we would do is probably reciprocal IVF where each of us might go through IVF to, to harvest eggs and then either one of us could carry the pregnancy, pregnancies, however many in the future. So that, that had been our plan. We knew obviously we would use a sperm donor, an anonymous sperm donor is, is what we wanted to do. And so we had sort of broad outlines, but it was still a couple of years before we really pursued the details of you know going to the going to the doctor abbott definitely did not want me to <laughs> she's an attorney i should say that <laughs> and so i don't think she appreciated when i would you know say okay well this is what we should do this is what we shouldn't do she's like let's talk to our doctor about it <laughs> yeah, it's like, a little close right to have, but, but you obviously knew enough to to realize the steps involved in so many people both in the you know, the cis, the hetero world and the LGBTQ world don't even know those basics when it comes to modern family building and reproductive medicine. All of the steps that Deidre had to take to have a baby with her wife is something the LGBTQ plus community knows all too well. Nothing 
about building a family is easy, but each unique path is worth honoring. And that's why I'm so happy to share our partner for today's episode, A Lifetime of Pride and Joy, which is a campaign celebrating modern family building in celebration of Pride Month 2021. To further heighten the message of accessibility and inclusivity of fertility care among the LGBTQ community, A Lifetime of Pride and Joy includes a fertility journey giveaway in which one randomly chosen winner will have the opportunity to build their own family through a customized fertility plan, including IVF and surrogacy packages and associated services from each of these premier nationally recognized fertility service providers, the Prelude Network, My Ache Bank, Bundle Fertility, and Circle Surrogacy. There is no purchase necessary to enter this amazing giveaway, retailed at up to $75,000, and the winner will be announced in early July. To learn more about the campaign, see the contest rules, and learn how to enter the Fertility Journey giveaway, visit pridejoybaby.com. So you knew you needed a sperm donor. You talked about reciprocal IVF. Then what happened when you when you started to pursue this path and what surprised you? So we, you know, we each got blood work to test ovarian reserve, ultrasounds, that kind of thing. And and what we learned was that my ovarian reserve was really not great. And it's interesting, this is where I think I began to see the patient perspective because from Abbott's point of view, I think she thought, well, let's just give it a shot. And I guess my knowing the things that I know and, you know, yes, it's possible, but I knew that for us thinking long-term, what, what are the odds this is going to work? Probably not great based on, based on that number. And so, you know, we had, we had a lot of conversations about it. We retested and ultimately just decided that we would go with with her eggs and leave the option open of my being able to carry. Although I secretly hope that she loves being pregnant and will <laughs> do it in the future. <laughs> so, and you picked, and how did you guys pick? I love this question because it's so interesting, I think, for our audience. How did you pick the donor that you guys worked with? So that is one of the most interesting experiences. Anybody can go online and look at, at sperm donors and it's... If you are bored one Friday night, go online. It's really hilarious. <laughs> yeah, um, there are some sperm banks that will will give you sort of like a celebrity lookalike. Like this looks like a combination of Brad Pitt and Robert Redford, or and some celebrities you've never heard of, and you're googling, and you're like, oh no, 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 no. Um, and you know you'll you'll get to read a personal statement, or usually just see childhood photos. But the, the personal statements are interesting. You know, there's a lot that goes into it that if you I guess things that you wouldn't think about if you were having a baby with someone else that mm-hmm. you were in a heterosexual relationship with, for example, or, you know, just even a, a casual encounter, mm-hmm. you're not getting to pick, okay, well, what was your education level? What's your health history? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, are you a carrier for this, this genetic condition? And it's great to have that information, but it also becomes, you know, it, you almost need a spreadsheet of things where it's like, mm-hmm. I don't know, does that, does that make him... Like, do we cross them off the list? I don't know. I would say it's, it was more entertaining than anything. Did you both agree on, you were happy, but did you agree on the, the pick? We did. We did a pretty good job, I think, of of picking our, our top five and sort of narrowing it down. And, and we agreed. We were really happy with our sperm donor. The other interesting thing that 
I thought from the going from the doctor to the patient perspective was I had no idea how to order the sperm, <laughs> which I know sounds ridiculous, but you'll call the bank or you'll place the order or whatever. And it's like, okay, do you want this, this kind of vial or do you want this type of vial? And I'm like, I don't know. And Abbott's like, you should know this. And I'm like, I don't. I, I just tell patients, order the sperm and we'll, we'll like do the IUI, but I, I have no idea what to order. So that was another kind of wake up call. Here's something that I need to educate myself about so I can, I can explain it to people. I know when we spoke previously, you said, well, I didn't do Abbott's egg retrieval, but I did do the transfer of the embryo. Can you bring, can you explain yeah. <laughs> what happened there? Yeah. So she obviously has a physician of record and that person did the retrieval. You're not exactly supposed to, I guess, provide medical care for your spouse or anybody in your family. So obviously the, the invasive kind of procedures mm-hmm. I was not going to do. An embryo transfer is not all that invasive and and obviously since I'm qualified to do it in terms of being credentialed for the procedure, it, it was something that was, it was really special to be able to do that. And my, my embryologist was totally supportive of it. Our doctor was supportive of it. And she was there in her official capacity, but allowed me to actually do the transfer. So that was really special. That's so beautiful. I mean, it's, it's really, you know, some clinics, as you know, allow your partner to be in the room. Well, during COVID, it's even different, but Mm -hmm. traditionally, you know, allow your partner to be in the room and other clinics I went to through the years did not. One of my transfers, I was in the room with my mother. And of course, every time I had an IVF transfer, I thought it would work. So I was, (laughs) I didn't know it would be eight years before, you know, it worked. But at the time, I, I remember I was with my mother and we were looking on screen and just in complete disbelief that, wow, we're, we're sharing this holy moment. So did you, you know, watch the embryo even in the lab? I mean, you've been there for every step, I imagine, of this, this baby. I didn't, I didn't, you know, check it, check out the embryos in the lab, but maybe next time, actually, now that you've given me the idea. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how the the embryologist would feel bad, but I just imagine being that close to the process and it's your baby now that that you're involved in must be so amazing. So the transfer was performed, your wife, it's her eggs and she's carrying obviously. And now now what's happening is she, she's pregnant? She's pregnant, she's about 26 weeks pregnant. And yeah, we, we were very fortunate. She, she got pregnant with the first transfer and has done well knock on wood, has done well thus far during the pregnancy. So, Wow, knock on wood. So as a fertility specialist and patient, you really straddle both sides. Um, What have you learned maybe that you didn't learn in medical school or even through practicing that you learned through this past year with Abbott? Some of it was just logistics, you know, knowing or learning when and how much medication that a patient should order so that they're not at the FedEx facility at you know 11 p.m. begging somebody to let them have their shipment. And I think a lot of it was was learning how much, kind of stepping back and, and remembering, I guess, how little the average person knows about reproduction in general, but especially the complicated mechanics of an IVF cycle. And there's just so much uncertainty. And from the patient side, even something as simple as I had this many antral follicles on my baseline scan, like I, I'm 
the cycle's not going to work at all, you know, and realizing at every point where a patient may feel a lot of anxiety, I think it was really valuable for me to see where those points were so that as a doctor, I can be better and more proactive about recognizing when they need kind of a little bit more handholding or a little bit more counseling about, hey, this is normal, or, you know, we can't tell you everything to expect, but here are the things that you can expect within that window. Yes, absolutely. Because the whole thing is so overwhelming as the patient. And I had so many cycles also where I thought it was a done deal and a terrible cycle. And it turned out I had genetically healthy embryos. And then the opposite where I was like, this looks amazing, you know, at the, the first ultrasound. Yes. So how we think that we can do so much and we have so much control. And then a lot of times it does seem like a roll of the dice. It's a re- really seriously. And I think, you know, it's, it's the one thing that I, I've told our audience at Pregnanish is to expect the unexpected when you're trying to expect. Yes. <laughs> like, yes. yes because, well said. Right. Because it's, well, I think so much of life is managing expectations. I think so much mm-hmm. of relationships is managing expectations. Absolutely. But that's the same for this process of IVF or getting pregnant with help because you just, to think that there won't be twists and turns and that it'll be a linear path is often the path to heartache. And there's a lot of magic that happens that you also don't expect. A lot of beauty that happens that you don't expect, which I imagine when you thought of your family, you could never have placed yourself in the position you were in as you were transferring yeah. the embryo <laughs> into your exactly. body. So, so, you know, one other question I wanted to ask you is about misconceptions, because both professionally and personally, I think people don't understand modern family building in general. They don't understand reproductive medicine. They don't understand reproduction 101, to your point. Yeah. So what are, what are some misconceptions that you're hoping to kind of break by sharing your story? Well, I think, as you mentioned, just that a traditional, the way that you may think of how a family starts is that it's so much bigger than that. There are a lot more options than people may realize. And I think even within a fertility journey, it may happen in a way that you never expected. And so I think being open to learning and and recognizing all those different options. A lot of misconceptions just center around ovulation and and even how conception occurs. And I feel like there should be some sort of, not just health class, sex ed, don't get pregnant, use a condom. There should also be, okay, part two is let's discuss how fertility works. Yes. Um, and yeah, if you're not trying to get pregnant, it probably will happen the first time. Um, but <laughs> for the rest That's of us, what everyone in the infertility <laughs> the community yeah, thinks for sure. Yeah, I think that there's a, a huge, huge need. And it doesn't matter if it's someone who has no science background whatsoever or someone who is, you know, has a PhD or is a physician in another specialty. It's remarkable how little people know. And I think everything that we can do to educate people about how their bodies work and about how fertility works, particularly the age associated 
part of fertility and how it declines as you get older, all of those things are huge areas of need in terms of, of knowledge deficits. 100%. Well, I, I think you know, not surprisingly, as a as a Miss America, you're, you you answered very eloquently, and I uh, and powerfully <laughs> with a lot of insight. You still got it. I put you back on stage, but thank you so much for sharing your family story. I I look forward to following along. I'm you know I I don't know how public you'll be with this part two as your family grows, but it's so exciting. Thanks for being on the Pregnish Podcast. Well, thank you so much. And thanks for all you're doing. And thank you for listening to another episode of Pregnanish, where we believe in real talk about fertility and capturing the good, the bad, the strange, and the beautiful stories of modern family building. Please subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. Until next time.